welcome to another episode of On the Couch with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. And this week, I'm very lucky to be chatting to the MD of Iron Ear, Mr. Bernard Rowe. And uh, Bernard, thank you very much for joining me today. It's really delightful to get you on. I know it's been hard pinning you down. You've been in COVID ISO uh, for the last week. So uh, this is a long anticipated podcast from some of our members, I know. So thanks very much for appearing. No, pleasure, Henry. Thank you for having me on. And um, yeah, man, I'm glad to be ahead of COVID isolation. I didn't have COVID, fortunately. My daughter did, though, so I had a week of isolation. Those pesky kids, eh? <laughs> As they say on the Scooby-Doo, maybe. Um, now, uh, just to give you a bit of an introduction for our listeners out there, Bernard is uh, the Managing Director and has been the Managing Director of Iron Ear since August 2007. I have to say, Bernard, that's probably some sort of record, isn't it? That's a, that's a, that's a long time. Uh, it is, yes. Uh, I guess I was involved even really with this company prior to the IPOing, so you know it's something that I was involved in. You know, putting the company together on one of the large shareholders. So, but yes, it's a it's a long time to be at the helm of a of a publicly listed company. Uh, so, but. Uh, it's certainly, um, you know, been been a lot of fun over that time, and and you know, fortunately, we've had some you know really good success during that time. Focused, you know, primarily in in Nevada, in the United States, and uh, you know, that's really where we started, and we, we're still there today, and uh, we've been you know really successful. So it's uh, been a pretty good journey. Oh, it certainly has, and you've got uh, a lithium project, which is what we're going to be talking about today. In Nevada, and I think it was early in 2016 that you visited this lithium boron deposit in southern Nevada, and this is what got you all excited, I guess. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I had worked a lot in this in this actual exact area where this where rhyolite rich lithium and boron deposits located, uh, but exploring for gold. So you know the the the, the, dis, the not only Nevada but the district uh, and the region where the Rhyolite Ridge is, I'd actually spent, you know, nearly 10 years uh, in the area, uh, even before Rhyolite Ridge. So um, it was an area that I knew very well. Uh, you know, we'd been running exploration for gold in this area. We'd been renting, you know, a farmhouse, which we still have today in this area many for, for many years, uh, know a lot of the local people. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, very fortunate, I guess, to have the opportunity to go out and visit what we now know as Rhyolite Ridge back in 20, 2016. Uh, but uh, so it was in our backyard, effectively, where we were exploring. We just weren't looking for lithium at the time. Now, before we get on, Bernard, I must uh, remind listeners, though, that this is general advice only before we get into the, the meat of this, uh, this chat. So it is general advice only. So please do your own research, listeners, and talk to your own financial advisor. Uh, on anything that we discuss in this podcast. Okay, Bernard, I'm going to kick things off because you've kind of introduced yourself, really, uh, rather than me doing it. Um, but I'm going to kick things off. First of all, why lithium? What, what's what's the big... I know we keep being told about this, but for, for the dummies amongst us, why lithium? Uh, so, you know, lithium has actually been, you know, a, a material that's been used for a variety of applications for, for quite a long time, but very small volumes. So it gets used in the glass industry. It gets used in the uh, in Greece, actually, believe it or not, for for drilling. Um, but it's had very small applications for a long period of time. But it's really the rapid rise in demand is everything to do with lithium-ion batteries. And whilst again, most people are familiar with uh, small lithium-ion batteries that you might use in a, a torch or a remote control or something like that. But and so they've been around for a while. It's really the, their application in electric vehicles that is driving the incredible demand growth. So really, you can equate lithium uh, demand to uptake of electric vehicles. Simple as that. And that's where all the demand growth is going to come from. Uh, has already been, and uh, and that's why when you hear of car companies setting very aggressive targets. To produce a certain number of electric vehicles by you know 2025, 2030, you know and, and beyond, you know it's very easy then to extrapolate those numbers and say, well, how much lithium do you need to do that? Uh, so that that's where the growth has come from. And why lithium-ion batteries in electric cars? That's pretty simple. 
lithium is a really light metal and it allows you to put a lot of energy into a battery that doesn't weigh very much. So that energy density, how much energy you can put into the battery versus how much the battery weighs, lithium is as good as it gets because there's nothing lighter than lithium that will behave like that and be able to store the energy that lithium-ion batteries can store. Because there are competing technologies, aren't there? I, I could be wrong, but isn't there a boron-based battery as well? And you guys have got a, a bit of a boron focus as well at uh, Rhyolite Ridge. Uh, they are using boron, uh, very small quantities of it, in batteries, that's true. Uh, it's not a it's not a sort of replacement to a lithium ion, but they they actually use it as a sort of a in small very small quantities for discrete sort of applications within batteries. But actually, more interestingly, perhaps in in the electric vehicle world, is that boron is used in permanent magnets, which uh, use rare earth materials uh, and boron and iron, so neodymium, iron, boron permanent magnet, uh, these are the magnets that gets used in electric motors for cars, electric cars, but also in wind turbines. So but boron does have direct application into the electric motor of an electric vehicle. But then boron, the, the more interesting thing really about boron is that it's used in so many different applications. You know, I, I mentioned that lithium was used for other things, but these are very small quantities and they're not growing much you know a little mm. bit of growth but not a lot it's all about electric vehicles for lithium growth whereas if you look at boron it's used in such a wide range of applications and all those applications are growing uh, and growing um, strongly so it's used in the glass industry uh, so even even a car that with this windscreens it will potentially have glass in, uh, sorry, um, it'll potentially have boron in the glass in the cars. Uh, it's in carpets because the fibres of, uh, of uh, in, uh, in carpets use boron. Um, the it's used in insulation. It's used in uh, agriculture as a micronutrient uh, for improving crop yields. It's actually even used as a preservative for wood to stop termites and other pests from uh, destroying uh, timbers. So. It, you know, it's used in a myriad of applications and they are all growing quite strongly in demand. So uh, it's not, for boron, it's not just about electric vehicles. It's about a whole heap of different applications. So I, I guess with your project in Nevada, you're getting a bit of a twofer here, aren't you, with lithium and boron? Yeah, absolutely, we are. And sometimes people sort of mistakenly think of the boron as a little bit of a side thing that's, you know, a little bit of a byproduct that you, you know, might make a little bit of money out of if you're lucky. You know, maybe you can sell it, maybe you can't, you know, which, which often is the case for many byproducts in mining projects. But in this case, it's entirely different. Uh, this, this project will produce a large amount of boron as boric acid and the revenue from that boric acid will be in excess of $100 million per year, um, which means that about 30 to 35% of the revenue of the project comes from the boric acid and the other 65 to 70 comes from the lithium. So, you know, it's you're right, you, you're getting sort of two for the price of one here and we don't have to do anything different to extract both lithium and boron. It's the one process to end up with the two end products. So we're going to produce boric acid whether we like it or not, and it's worth in excess of $100 million a year, and we're going to sell it, and we've already got offtake agreements in place for it. Um, and it's an important part of this project. But ultimately, this is a lithium project with a lot of boron. Uh, that is a lot of boron, isn't it? hundred million bucks. That's a that's a pretty nice byproduct yes. uh, to have going for you, absolutely, to say the least. Now, now, when we look at the lithium market today, prices are pretty uh, maxed out at the moment. So much so that we even saw the Chinese authority. I think uh, when was it last week uh, or the week before, trying to get some of the um, the producers and the and the car makers etc. in China together to get a more rationalised lithium pricing going. Is, is there a danger that we're seeing a very short-term spike because of this massive uptake and then things just go back to a, a kind of normality in, in two or three years' time? Uh, no, I don't I don't think there's a danger that the, that the demand and the prices are going to fall back to, you know, levels that we saw, you know, 
two or three years ago or five or ten years ago. Um, no, I, because I think that the fundamentals of the market are changing and, you know, like I said uh, previously, the it's pretty easy to see how much lithium the world's going to need when you look at the number of cars, electric cars that are going to be required and, you know, yeah, battery technology can change the exact amount of lithium required for a particular car and, you know, some cars have more battery capacity than others so that, you know, it's not just a single number. But nevertheless, it's, it's relatively straightforward to extrapolate between number of electric cars and, and amount of lithium that's required. And, and the reality is that the, the demand is going to grow like we haven't seen in, a, in, in any other commodities before. And so, you know, when you're getting something that's growing at in excess of 20% per annum compound annual growth, then, you know, that, that's going to mean that, you know, prices are going to stay longer, higher for longer. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't see how that, you know, I mean, to, to put a lot of downward pressure on price would mean, would require an, a dramatic increase in production and the world has not been able to do that. They're, you know, they're, they're, it's not that quick and easy to bring new lithium projects online and we saw that during the last boom of a few years ago. Um, you know, there wasn't actually that much new production. There were some, certainly. Not a lot of greenfields, you know, new greenfields production uh, brought on stream. So it's not easy to do. It takes a long time to, you know, discover, uh, evaluate, finance, um, and then build a new lithium project. And uh, that's going to put a sort of a, a, a cap, a, a bit of a, a break, if you like, a handbrake on the introduction of new, new, new supply. And at the same time, you've got, you know, year after year, the demand is going up dramatically. So I think we, we are going to see higher prices for longer. I think that the spot prices that we're seeing right now, I think spot prices are over $70,000 a tonne. Um, in China uh, at the present time, uh, you know, I, I think that we would all agree that they're, they're going to come off. That spot, it's only a small part of the market. Most lithium is actually sold not on the spot market but on under contracts. Um, all of the, all, you know, most of the lithium production comes from larger companies and they do typically, I think, 12-month contracts and, you know, we don't get to see what those prices are Um but I think you know prices will come off a bit, but but they won't go back to where they were before. I don't believe. Uh, when I started working on this project in 2016, we were using six thousand dollars lithium per ton wow. in our model. Okay, to make sure this project, uh, you know, was would work. That's the price assumption that we were using. And of course, today, um, most people are using somewhere between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars. Uh, as as a as a as a input for their modelling, and and as I said, mm. spot prices are seventy thousand dollars in China. So you know, there's this really wide ranging sort of price environment. So um, just just a, an observation, I guess when all these companies, all these lithium companies, I'm not directly talking about um, Ironia, but other lithium companies do these offtake agreements. That they all seem to be based on uh, some sort of formula. Compare which has a, a, a sort of a basis, I guess, in the spot price to some extent. Is this the sort of the industry norm that there is this pricing formula that's based off whatever the spot price is at the moment, plus or minus, or probably I'd say minus, yeah, uh, for a long term contract? Is that how it works? Yes, I think that's where it's sort of going in the direction that it's going. I think you know, a few years ago, you were seeing more fixed price offtake agreements, you know, where they were a set. Either a fixed price or or, or or a sort of range of fixed price uh, or a range of pricing, but it seems likely now that most are moving to uh, a pricing that we would say is index based. So it's tied to an index, and so it will it will rise and fall as those uh, pricing indexes fall. Things like fast markets, benchmark minerals, um, Roskill, etc., publish. Uh, you know, pricing indexes, and so yeah. based on those, that's what, what we've seen for most. We ourselves, we've got a seven thousand ton per annum offtake agreement uh, with Echo Pro Innovation, one of the Korean manufacturers. They're the, one of the largest 
high nickel type cathode makers in the world and our contract with them is based on a pricing index so it, it floats the price floats with the index formula a formula pricing i should really refer to it based on an index yeah. or a number of indexes it's often not one index it's a formula that mm. draws on several indexes right well that, that makes a lot of sense all right bernard let, let's talk about nevada let's talk about real light ridge what is it that excites you about this lithium boron project in Nevada? What 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 uh, really turns you on about this? I, I think that you know first and foremost is that it is a world class lithium and boron deposit located in the United States. You know the second largest car market in the world. Uh, you know one of the most uh, industrialized countries in the world, and hence has huge domestic demand for both of these products, not just the lithium, but the boron. So that's really what excites me is that the United States is a big consumer of both of these commodities, and they're going to increase that dramatically, particularly on the lithium over the coming decade as they electrify the second largest motor vehicle fleet in the world. They're going to need large amounts of these raw materials. And if you look at the United States, it has almost no domestic production of lithium, certainly nothing that goes into the car batteries. There's a very small production of lithium currently. It's 5,000 tonnes a year. It's insignificant. Um, they, they're going to go from you know, next to no production to needing probably in the order of a million tonnes them, just themselves by the end of this decade. And th that's what excites me is there's this tremendous opportunity to bring on domestic supply, which is going to be desperately needed in, in the United States. Um, you know, there's a whole range of reasons for that. You know, obviously, just simply the demand's going to be there, but, but in, you know, there's going to be other pressures here uh, around security of supply chain. Um, you know, lithium at the moment comes from Chile, Argentina and Australia, and most of it goes to China for processing, certainly nearly everything that leaves Australia goes to China for processing. Um, you've got these very long supply chains, you know, moving material all around the world, and there's really a lot of pressure now from, a, from an environmental, uh, particularly environmental and emission reduction type perspective to try and do something to reduce moving these materials all around the world because... That in itself is an, is expensive and it creates uh, emissions by having to transport things in ships around the world. And, uh, you know, so domestic domestic supply, particularly of critical materials, is going to become more and more important. And, and then in addition to that, there's also the security of supply or uh, strategic security uh, issues here as well, where the United States have said that they want to be um, so not entirely self-sufficient, but have a significant amount of domestic production from a strategic and, and uh, security of supply um, position. Well, we're certainly seeing that at the moment writ large with the problems that uh, some European countries have got with their reliance on Russian oil and gas, making it very hard to, uh, to counter that. So you can understand the strategic imperative to uh, secure that supply. One, one thing that puzzled me, uh, this you, you'd be able to answer this really. Why China? Why do we ship it all to China? Is it because they just have the facilities, or is it, it is a dirty process to to actually process it? A bit like rare earths, where we have to um, mm. sort of um, push it offshore to some extent. Is is that the issue, or is it just because they've got all the the right gear and they've invested and we haven't? Yeah, I think there's a combination of reasons. It's not so much a dirty process, but it is an energy intensive process. Okay, for for so lithium today comes from two parts of the world, and they're both very different. So the lithium that comes from Chile and Argentina comes from brines where they pump salty water from the ground and they put it in a pond and they let the sun do the work to evaporate the water, concentrate the lithium. It takes probably you know somewhere around two years to concentrate, just relying on the sun. But the energy cost is, of course, negligible. Uh, Mm. On the other side, and that's about 50% or a bit less of the world's supply, the other 50% of the world's supply comes from spodumene, which is a mineral that has lithium in it. Uh, the rock is called pegmatite, and it's a very hard granite-like rock. And to get the lithium out means you've got to 
crush up that hard rock, so that's fairly expensive. But but even more expensive is that you then have to get the lithium out of the mineral called spodumene, and to do that you have to heat it up to about a thousand degrees, what we call roasting, and that's very energy intensive. And so that that's one of the main reasons why this material was traditionally and still is today shipped to China because of the low cost of energy uh, and, and other costs, not just energy, but particularly energy costs uh, to process it over there. What, what, what Australia sends to China is 94% waste, okay? The, rock, the material that gets loaded on ships in Western Australia only has 6% Li2O. Um, the rest of it is waste material. So we, we're moving a lot of material all around the world that actually doesn't get used in lithium-ion batteries at all. Um, so that, that, that's a key driver, okay, was the processing costs. But then I think, you know, the Chinese saw the opportunity and saw where the market was heading and the, the, mm. the trend towards electrification. And I, and I think they got ahead of the curve on that and uh, dominated the, uh, the industry for processing and making these refined lithium chemicals and then making the cathodes and the batteries that are needed for electric cars. So they, they just, uh, you know, got ahead of everyone else. Hmm. Bernard, let, let's talk. Um, let's let's talk on Rhyolite Ridge. I mean, there's been a lot of focus on the buckwheat, mm -hmm. and, we, and we can't we can't get around that um, team's buckwheat, which has caused some issues for you guys. Where are we on on that at the moment? Uh, maybe you could explain the issue and, and what you're doing to uh, to get through that environmental concerns that some some have. Yeah, sure, happy to. So, team's buckwheat uh, is a is a rare plant that grows out on the Rhyolite Ridge site. And we've known about it since we first started working on the project. So everything we've done has been taken that into account. So there's no surprises uh, as we've gone along with the, the buckwheat on the ground. Uh, it grows over an area of about 10 acres, okay, on the edge of the deposit. And just by the way, you know, we, we've drilled not all of the deposit, but we've drilled a large part of it. And the deposit itself, as drilled, has got a footprint of about just under 800 acres. So you've got 800 acres of covered by the resource, 10 acres covered by the buckwheat. It's on the edge of the deposit, on the western edge. Uh, it does not cover the deposit. It's just 10 acres on the edge. So it's not that difficult for us to avoid it. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's had to, we've had to sort of, you know, modify our plans a bit uh, to take that into account. As we've gone along, uh, you know, from a mining perspective, there there was reasons why we needed to you know, make some modifications and, and, and you know keep the the open pit that we're planning away from the buckwheat. But uh, nevertheless, you know, that it's been reasonably straightforward to do that, and it's easy to for the for the plant and the mine to coexist. Uh, there's no issues about us wiping out the plant, as some people have suggested we would. That's complete rubbish. Uh, you know, we, we, we're actually spending more than a million dollars a year protecting the plant. Uh, and when I say protecting, I'm meaning that we're not going to encroach on the plants with, with our mining activity, so we don't have to move any of them. Um, we, But in addition to that, we are also spending a considerable amount of money Growing seedlings, propagating the plants, getting them to, uh, you know, look at growing them in other neighbouring areas, so we can expand the population, uh, so that the plant, the, the plant itself has, you know, um, uh, is conserved in well into the future. Um, you know what we call uplift, where you get, you know, it only grows on ten acres, so we're going to try and get it growing on a much larger area, more plants, which is overall good for the conservation of the species. These are voluntary actions that we're taking. Uh, we're, not, we're not actually going to sure. move any of the plants ourselves. So, you know, y yes, it's a factor in, in, in what we've had to design out at the site, but there's no issue at all from, from, a, from the perspective of can, can you do both, can they coexist? And, in fact, what we, our vision is that the, the mine itself and, and Ironeer and Rhyolite Ridge will actually ensure through the work that we're doing and the funding that we're providing, that the uh, the plant is actually preserved and uh, and uh, flourishes into the future. 
now, now you've done a deal with uh, Sabanye Stillwater. I guess that's not a company that we're necessarily familiar with. It, it was a, I thought it was a cracking deal, big joint venture with the uh, with the project. What was it four hundred and ninety million US? I mean, that that to me is a is a cracking endorsement of the deal and solves a lot of your funding problems. For, for those people listening here, uh, we're used to seeing Chinese companies and uh, and various other companies taking big stakes in these sorts of projects. Who who are Sabanye? Where do they hail from? So Sabanye is originally a South African company and they're, they're a very large producer or the largest actually producer in the world of, of platinum and palladium, or what we call platinoids. Right. Um, so they own and operate platinum and palladium mining operations in South Africa. They're also a large gold producer, mainly from in South Africa. But they, they, they've been on a, on a, a delivering on a strategy to reposition the company into you know, battery metals diversification into battery metals and also geographical diversification, and which makes actually perfect sense when you look at the company because platinum and palladium, one of the uses of these materials is in catalytic converters, which of course gets used in internal combustion engines. Uh, cars with internal combustion engines. So they've actually been supplying materials to the auto industry for a long time. And so mm. mo moving actually into uh, EV-related materials, particularly around batteries, makes perfect sense if you've come from uh, the background that they have. Yeah. So the, but Great hedge, great hedging. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, I, I certainly don't speak for Sabanier, but... Um, you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense. And in fact, you know, th there will be internal combustion cars for some time to come. We, we cannot, you know, switch over quickly from one type to the other. It's going to take time, as we explained before, you know, supply and new supply and demand for lithium will, will actually, and other materials will actually have some control over how quickly we can transition. And so, you know, the world's going to continue using internal combustion engines for some time in cars. They're going to need catalytic converters. Uh, in addition to that, there will be hybrid vehicles for, um, you know, for some time to come. Uh, but, but overall, you know, the transition from that into electric vehicles makes a lot of sense. Um, they, they also, in addition to South Africa, they have operations already in the United States uh, for, for, again, for, for platinum and palladium, uh, which is the still water in Montana. That's where the Stillwater name comes from in the still, so Sabania Stillwater. So they're, they're, they're very um, well-known um, platinum and palladium mining operations in the state of Montana. Uh, they've invested, Sabania Stillwater have also invested into lithium uh, assets in Europe, in Finland. Uh, they're looking at or have been investing in nickel processing assets in France. So, you know, they're really diversifying and expanding into uh, green metals, uh, energy-related metals, uh, electrification, EV-related metals. So they're a logical partner for Ionia. They've got a wealth of mining expertise, um, which is also a big advantage for a small company like ours to have as a partner, someone who's, you know, um, built and operated large mining operations and we'll be leaning on them and we already are for their expertise to help us. So, you know, when, when you look at it, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to have a partner like 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 a, a Sabanier because they, they bring a lot to the table with the relationships with the autos, the supply chains, the the, uh, the mining uh, history, uh, all, all will be advantageous to have working alongside Iron here. And as you said, so $490 million US basically that yeah. does cover all of the equity that we require to build the project, but it, it's it's actually more than that because the it means that when we're arranging the debt for the remaining part of the funding, it's not Ionia arranging the debt on its own. It's Ionia and Sabanier are working together to secure mm. the best available debt for this project, which which again is a far more advantageous position to be in than just being a, a single asset company that. Is, does not have producing uh, assets and cash flow uh, trying to arrange debt on its own. 
So, so what sort of total capex are we looking for the project? It's in the order of $800 million. So we, we did a DFS two years ago now. Time's gone by really quickly. We finished it just as COVID was starting. So uh, that's uh, early in 2020. Uh, the, the capital requirement at that time was $785 million. Um, we, we are... That's US or Aussie? Sorry, US. US. So, US, you right. know, round numbers 800 at that time. And uh, we... Uh, and so the Sabanye 500 million, you know, covers more than 50% of that, closer to 60% of it. And the remaining uh, funding of, you know, of the order of uh, 300 million will, will, will come from de uh, debt funding. But plus, in addition to that, it allows us to look at additional uh, capital required for things like hydroxide conversion, which if you go back and look at our DFS, we had about $100 million additional capital in year three to uh, introduce uh, upgrading our plant to, to produce battery-grade hydroxide. Um, you know, we, we, we can look at bringing that forward along with some other uh, potential add-ons to increase the uh, you know the economic attractiveness of the project because we you know we, we're less constrained by the capital uh, now that we have a partner like Sabanye and that we've secured that equity component of just under five hundred million dollars. That's pretty good going, isn't it? So, so um, I think it's one of the. Just, the I totally agree. I mean, it was a it's a great deal. I think it's still one of the best that's been done in the lithium space. And I yeah. mentioned about the difficulty in bringing Greenfield's production online. The lithium industry has not been very good at that. You know, we, we had uh, Oricobra uh, bringing their Oleroz plant operation online, you know, now seven, eight years ago of that order. Um, you know, that, that's been one of the real success stories of the new Greenfield's operation. But there's not many others. There's been spodumene operations built in Australia, but as I said before, that, that's mm. producing a spodumene concentrate, which gets sent to China uh, mainly for, for processing. But in terms of actually making end product lithium chemicals, there's been very few new greenfields projects. So Iron Ear is in a fantastic position because we have one of the very few that has that equity funding in place. Yeah, I, I think people will uh, kind of get a bit complacent about the time it takes for some of these projects to come on. I've been a shareholder of um, Core Lithium for donkey's years, and I, and I bought them sub 10 cents. And now, of course, they're on the cusp, I guess, of coming into production later this year yes. up near Darwin, and, and the share price has responded accordingly. But, you know, it's, it's been a long, long road with, with Stephen Biggins, who... Um, actually resigned today, which is interesting. But um, it's been a long road, so you've got to have patience in these things. What What's the sort of timeline for you uh, with um, with Iron Ear and Real Light Ridge? Yeah. So, um, so firstly, looking back, and, and you're totally right, these things do take time. So, you know, it's six years since I first set foot on Real Light Ridge, and over that six-year period, you know, we, we've spent about $100 million dollars. Um, so not only does it take time, it takes considerable investment. If, if you want to get something to the stage where you can attract, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of capital investment like we've been able to, you know, that, that takes time and it also takes money invested. So uh, we, we've done a lot of work that's resulted in us being where we are today and getting that Sabanya deal and I think in the, in the near term also securing the debt. Uh, later this year is what we're hope, uh, hoping and planning for. Um, but looking forward, uh, it'll take us about two years to build this project. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a big project. Like I said, it's $800 million. Uh, there's a you know, big process plant involved. It's a two-year construction period. Uh, we, we're intending on being ready with both the equity, which we have, the debt, which we will put in place before the end of this year, the engineering completed so that all those things we will have done to the point that we can commence construction by the end of this year. That's that's our target and, and we're on track for that. Uh, the, the other aspect or consideration in terms of timetable is permitting. And so we've there are three key permits required 
before we can commence construction. We have two of them, uh, two of the three. So we're working on the final permit, which is the federal government permit, uh, what's called the plan of operation, and a record of decision on that plan of operation. Uh, and we're in that process at the moment. And, uh, you know, we've been working closely with the Bureau of Land Management, which is the federal government, which uh, uh, issues that permit, Department of Interior, which is the department in which the Bureau of Land Management sits. But we've also been working closely with the Fish and Wildlife as well because that permit has to take into account the protection of the buckwheat, which, which our plans do, as I've already outlined. And uh, so we, we are, we, we're working closely with both BLM and Fish and Wildlife to try and get this permitted as quickly as possible. Um, you know, we, we've, we've said uh, publicly that we're uh, looking forward to having that largely done or done by the end of the year so that it aligns with the, uh, the rest of the work that I'd outlined as being ready. So we, um, we, subject to those permitting permits but, or that final permit being issued, we could be commencing construction of this project, you know, in January of next year. It would take us two years to build. So we would be first production sort of late 24 into 25, which is really, a, a, I think, a perfect timing for us because that, that's really when the demand uh, is going to, um, particularly in the United States, is really going to grow very rapidly during that period, but also globally. So, I mean, we're seeing high prices because we're seeing, you know, strong demand now, but I think everybody agrees the period where it's going to be even stronger demand growth, and we're not sure yet where all that supply is going to come from, that's going to really hit in the middle of this decade. And that that's because that's when the car companies are saying, we're going to have these targets of production of electric vehicles reached by the middle of the decade. So as far as permitting goes, two out of three ain't bad, as Meatloaf would say. <laughs> exactly. Rest your soul. Um <laughs> Exactly. Uh, but yeah, yeah no, that's right. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've made uh, comments about this before, but, you know, the only matter that we had to sort of uh, adjust or deal with that, that was sort of out of the ordinary uh, with the permitting process was the buckwheat. So, you know, the, the buckwheat uh, has been dealt with by avoiding it and protecting it and doing these conservation measures that I described. So it's actually something that's reasonably easy to manage, you know. It's, it would be a different scenario if we had the plant growing all over the deposit, then it would be a much harder issue. But when you've got a small population on the edge of the deposit, you know, it's a reasonably easy thing to deal with and address. And fortunately, the plant itself uh, is, is also a tough little plant and we've been able mm -hmm. to successfully grow it from seed and, and we've got seedlings growing and we, we will continue that program with the aim of ending up with a greenhouse which, which has thousands of these plants so that we can be just continuously planting out new seedlings into the surrounding area to, just to make sure that the population doesn't go backwards and, more importantly, it expands. Now, obviously, one issue uh, which is focusing a lot of investors' minds at the moment is inflation. And you talked about uh, the capex of being 800 million bucks US, uh, and that was the DFS done a little while ago. In terms of, you know, inflation in the US, even if you're doing a home reno, you know that there is, um, you know, some big price rises coming through the system. Is is there a danger that that 800 blows out the 1.2, or are you pretty confident about that number? We're pretty confident about it. I mean, obviously, you're right. There, there is inflation, and it's going to affect you know both materials and also labour, uh, both of which impact on the capex um, because mm. of the you know it's not just the materials of construction, but it's actually the cost of constructing as well. Um, so, um, but I think we you know we we identified that as as a risk along with a whole heap of other risks in our risk register that we developed with. Fluor, the engineering firm, you know, a number of three or four mm. years ago when we started on the definitive feasibility study. So, you know, it's not really new to us that, you know, that there can be inflation, of course. It, it is higher inflation than, you know, most anticipated. Uh, but I think one of the mitigations we had for, for um, you know, coping with uh, higher pricing or inflation or price escalation was that 
we did a high level of engineering before we went out and got costs, okay, uh, cost estimates. And the higher level of engineering that you have completed means that the bids that you get are much more, they have much more information to go on and they can give a much more accurate pricing estimation. So, you know, I think often where there's a mismatch between early estimates and, and actuals in terms of capex on mining projects, often it does relate to the level of engineering that have been completed to get the original estimates to begin with. And, you know, if, if you do a light touch on the engineering, then you, your, your estimates are going to be very inaccurate. You know, they might be, you know, instead of being plus or minus 15%, they might be plus or minus, you know, 30 or 35% or whatever it is, depending on what level you've gone to. Well, we went to a very high level uh, for, a, for a bankable feasibility study. We went to a very high level of engineering uh, before we went and got that pricing. We are right now doing updating our pricing because our CapEx and OpEx estimates because before we make our FID, final investment decision, which as I mentioned, you know, we're going to be in a position to do that uh, at the end of the year, um, then uh, we, we need updated uh, capital and operating cost estimates. So we are actually in that process and, and to date, we haven't finished it by any means, but what we're seeing is actually fairly close to being in line with what we estimated a couple of years ago. So, and I think the reason for that is that we were probably, you know, a bit more conservative than most. Plus, we had the more accurate estimates yeah. to begin with. Yeah. yeah. So, so at the end of the day, I mean, in terms of uh, where, where you guys sit on the cost curve uh, when you do get into production, you've obviously got the boron uh, that hundred million bucks coming in every year, which is a, a big kicker, I guess. So, where do you compare with others in the space? Yeah, so we, it's a good question and uh, it's an important question. Um, and, you know, from our um, bankable feasibility with this high level of engineering and piloting, et cetera, what, where we've been able to land with that, i.e. these are pretty accurate estimates, you know, probably a lot more accurate than most projects uh, that are out mm -hmm. there with the level of work that we've done. Uh, we, we're around about, $2,500 per tonne of lithium carbonate. Uh, so two, $2,500 per tonne of lithium carbonate produced is our a cost, which puts us right at the very bottom of the cost curve. Now, you know, two things I would say that are really important to stress there. One is this level of detailed work that we've done to arrive at that number. This is not a, you know, a thumb suck and put the hand into the breeze. This is $100 million of work. Uh, so th these are accurate estimates. We've run pilot plants to demonstrate the flow sheet and make sure that uh, we can scale this up, etc. Uh, secondly, it's the boric acid that drives that price down so low. So when we say $2,500, that's after we've taken into account the boric acid. So we're, we're basically um, applying the boric acid as a credit against our costs. So... and, and you know, we, we produce a lot of boric acid. So, you know, for every tonne of lithium, we're producing around about nine tonnes of boric acid. And that nine tonnes is, you know, it's worth around $700 a tonne. So a tonne of lithium gives you about six to six and a half thousand dollars worth of boric acid. And it's, it's that which covers about 70% of our costs so right. The and the two and a half thousand dollars is the remaining thirty percent. So the, the boric acid basically pays to, for us to produce lithium. Wow, well, that, that's pretty impressive. Now, Bernard, before we go, I know that you guys have been chasing or on the cusp of a, a Nasdaq listing. How's that all going? Uh, very well. Uh, yeah, we. That's true. We we are pursuing a Nasdaq listing. Uh, we've done pretty much all of the compliance work for that now. We had to re, re, redo and restate our resource and reserve estimates because the, the NASDAQ and the US, uh, sorry, the US market in general, New York or the NASDAQ, stock exchange, doesn't matter. You now have to comply with a new code. So you cannot use JORC resource uh, code, JORC code resource reporting in the US. You have to do, mm. they've got their own standards now that they've introduced from uh, the middle of last year. So we, we, we've completed that. We've completed the bulk of the 
remaining uh, documentation and filings, etc. And re really, we're just waiting on the right timing to do it. So we haven't made the final decision on, on when that will be. But, you know, we, we've done everything to prepare for it. So, you know, we, we could move very quickly uh, and everything has gone quite smoothly. And, it, look, we think it makes perfect sense for, for Iron Ear, given the asset and the important strategic nature of it, that, it, that, it sh that we should have a listing in the U.S., I got to say, Bernard, to, to, to sum it up, and I, you you might be able to put me straight here, but this looks like a fantastic project. It's got the right location. You've got the low cost with the boric acids. You've got uh, a great partner on board with Sabanya with the equity funded position. Low cost. Um, it it looks looks like you're onto a winner here. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to like about the project, and I've said this to a few people. You know, that it's not often that you have a mineral deposit that the more work you do on it, the better it becomes. But Rhyolite Ridge is one of those rare beasts where, you know, we, we as we've done the work and, uh, you know, developed flow sheets and tested them and piloted them and, and you know, done, done all the detailed engineering work and design work and come up with the CapEx and OpEx estimates and recoveries, et cetera, everything has always been a little bit better than we were expecting. And you, you add that up. And, you know, the, it, it's a fantastic project. It's a world-class project. And that's been demonstrated, you know, with the work that we've done over the last five or six years. And, and just one last thing I would add, which is another, I think, fantastic recognition of the importance of this project and the attractiveness of it, is that Ioneer at the end of last year was invited into the Department of Energy Loan Program Office for detailed due diligence. Now, We'd actually been working with the Department of Energy all the way through 2021. So when I say invited in, it was after we'd finished all the pre-due diligence work of last year, we got invited into the detailed due diligence part of that program. Uh, and if we are successful, uh, and we don't know if we are yet, but if we are successful, that would cover the debt required to build the project, which would mean we would be fully funded equity from Sabanye and debt from the Department of Energy. And the, the money that we could get through that loan program office, is called, uh, is 10-year treasury rates. So you're talking about funding at about today 2%. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in with a good shot at that. And um, I'm, I'm confident about that. And uh, we've done the work to be able to demonstrate the economics, et cetera, and robustness of the project. The dual commodity helps, there's no question. And it's sitting there in rural Nevada where the local communities are really welcoming and very supportive of it being developed. And uh, that's what we're intending on doing. We're in a great position to be able to deliver on that. Well, Bernard, thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations on getting this far. I know it takes an awful long time to get this far, and it requires some patience, tenacity, and persistence from management to uh, to get this far. So congratulations on that. Really exciting projects, and um, certainly going to be keeping an eye on it uh, for our members. And thank you once again for all the time you've spent with us today. Really appreciate it. Now, my pleasure, Henry, and I uh, thank you as well for the opportunity and look forward to coming back on and giving you an update in the future. I'm actually heading, yeah, back, to, that, sorry, I'm heading back to the US on Monday, so uh, perhaps uh, sometime when I when I come back uh, uh, next back in Australia, I can give an update that I'm back over there on Monday. Cool. So, so how is, just finally, how is the US at the moment? Is it kind of normal over there? I, I know... Now we kind of feel it's a bit normal over here now, and certainly on the eastern seaboard. Is it normal over there yeah, in terms of sort of pre-COVID? Yeah, it is. Um, so this will be my third trip back to the US uh, since the borders opened up. So the train borders mm -hmm. opened up. So back in November, this will be the third, my third visit. I, 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 and I was in Reno, Nevada, only three weeks ago, and I, I would say it's back to normal. You know, there, there was. Right. Not much evidence of anything being different than it used to be. So uh, life was back to normal. Restaurants were full. Cafes were full. Uh, you know, business was getting back to normal. I went out to rural yep. Nevada to visit our project and we had a community meeting. You know, the local people in the communities were out and about. So, yeah, life's very much back to normal over there and you, you wouldn't know 
that uh, of what the, the last two years have been like. Yeah, two kinds of music in Nevada, country and western, or is it <laughs> a bit more diverse than that? Uh, I think no. There's, there's in rural Nevada, no, no question, it's country and western. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you've got it's actually quite an interesting. Um, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic state. I love the place. I've spent a lot of time there. I know a lot of people there. They're great people. Um, the locals, as I said, are really supportive of this project. I, I know most of them personally. Um, and, you know, I'm really grateful for all the support that they've given to Ironeer over the years. Uh, yeah, and it's a beautiful state. People think of it as a desert, but, uh, you know, there's, it's not just a desert. There's a, there's a lot to like about it. And then you, it's an interesting sort of mix, really, because you've got desert and then you've got, you're on the edge of the mountains. So, you know, you've yeah. actually got, you can ski in, in Nevada, whereas people don't imagine skiing in, in Nevada. But then you've also got, Reno and Las Vegas and Carson City, which are all on the, which are all along the uh, the western uh, sort of edges of uh, of Nevada, uh, you know they they're close to the border of California, and you've actually got a lot of people from California who have moved into Nevada for work. Um, so you've got this really quite unusual mix between the, the the cities on the west and the rest of the rural rural Nevada, which is, you know, largely unchanged from many decades ago. Well, Bernard, I, one day I'll get over there and I'll have to come and visit the project and uh, we can catch up there. But thanks once again. It's been an absolute delight to have you on this podcast. So good luck with the project and thanks again. Thanks, Henry. Pleasure. Bye for now.